you're right. I hit the wrong thing. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Okay, for those of you who are not familiar with me teaching, and that would be a lot of you, a little bit about me and my teaching style. First of all, I am very low-tech. I grew up in an era where there weren't computers in households. Uh, not at all. My, uh, my mother never knowingly used a computer in her life. Now, she probably did some and just didn't realize it. Because she did drive a car. And cars had computers. But, uh, uh, went to college before there were personal computers. Those were still several years away. We did have a mainframe computer, the college I went to. It was a rather huge monstrosity of a thing. The computer, along with all the disk drives, would have filled up a sizable chunk of this auditorium. I have in my pocket far more computing power and memory than that computer had. I mean, it's not even close. So, I mean, that to me is just mind-boggling. But that kind of tells you where I came from. I have used punch cards more than I have PowerPoint. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know what a computer punch card is, you can feel fortunate. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, very low tech. I also will stick pretty closely to the text. I think it's important to read and study the text and dig into what it says with what time that we have. Because this is God's word. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God, or God breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, on occasion, I may read a paragraph from a commentary that I thought stated something particularly well. And we will look at other scriptures. I'll refer to other passages. We'll read other passages. Because frankly, I think the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. So, that's kind of where I come from. So, uh, that's the way uh, we'll plan to do this uh, Colossians class for the rest of the quarter. So Colossians was written to the church in Colossae. Where in the world is Colossae? Good question. Glad you asked. It was in the territory of Asia or Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. Uh, the letters to the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation would be to churches in that region. 
Uh, Ephesus, you know, I, with Craig taught uh, Ephesians and Philippians last year. Ephesus is in Asia Minor, but right on the coast, so the very western part of Asia Minor. Uh, on the coast, it's a bay that empties into the Aegean Sea, which separates Turkey from Greece. Colossae is about 80 miles east of there, inland. Uh, it's close to Hierapolis and uh, Laodicea. You may have heard of those. Both of those are referenced in the book of Colossians. Uh, I think it was like 13 miles from one and 12 miles from another. Uh, and so those three cities kind of form a triangle, which those of you who are good with geometry will say, of course three points form a triangle, which is true as long as they're not in exactly a straight line. So, uh, so that's kind of where Colossae uh, was. It actually doesn't exist today. But some of the things I found about Colossae, it actually predated both Hierapolis and Laodicea. There was a historian, Herodotus, uh, that in his writing says the city dates back to at least 480 B.C. Uh, and he mentions the city in connection with his report of Xerxes and his army passing through that region at that time. So it goes way back. He described Colossae as a great city of Phrygia. Uh, that's the region. And actually, Phrygia is mentioned, one of the places in Acts chapter 2, that Jews had come on the day of Pentecost from that region. Possibly some were from Colossae, we don't know. Uh, possibly some of those became Christians. Again, we don't know. But uh, it was described as a populous city, wealthy and large, uh, Gain most of its prosperity through wool and the weaving of wool. Now, by the time the church was founded in Colossae in the first century, it was a very small, insignificant town. The roads through there had changed, ended up going through Hierapolis and Laodicea, so they became the big cities, and Colossae, just a small town. And like I said, it no longer exists. Uh, and from what I read, the ruins really haven't been excavated because uh, the government of Turkey hasn't allowed that yet. Uh, so uh, as far as what we know about the church at Colossae, uh, Epaphras was the person who was most likely started the church. He's mentioned multiple times in the book. Uh, he was a Gentile from the city of Colossae. Likely that he was converted by Paul uh, during some of his journeys. And Paul was in Asia Minor. If you turn to Acts chapter 19, uh, 
and uh, verse 10, you know, the first part of Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus and he ends up staying there for two years. Verse number 10 says, and this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So it's likely that somebody from Colossae had actually heard Paul speak uh, when he was there in Ephesus for two years and was part of spreading the gospel in that area. Uh, But Paul himself most likely had never been to Colossae. Uh, From chapter 2 and verse 1 of Colossians, we can uh, gather that, and we'll see that as we we go through. Uh, Paul identifies himself as the writer of the book. Uh, It is one of Paul's prison epistles that he wrote during time that he was in prison in Rome. If you turn to Acts chapter 28, the last two verses of the book of Acts talk about this time. In verses 30 and 31 says, And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So most likely at this time, He wrote Colossians as well as the other epistles that are known as his prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. Uh, And Paul does reference several times in those books and in Colossians about his chains and his imprisonment. So it's, uh, it's very likely that that is where he was when he wrote the book of Colossians. So, any questions or thoughts on that before we uh, get into the text? Okay, so turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, and let's look at verses 1 through 6. Uh, I'll read those. Uh, That way you can all hear, because I know there's some people that are uh, hooked up to the the sound system. uh, And so uh, it's probably better for them if I were to read this. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. 
So Paul begins this letter like he does many others of his letters, identifying himself and talking about how he's an apostle. You know, he did this in Galatians and was even a little more extensive uh, as we saw in Galatians 1 and verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from man, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So, Paul was an apostle chosen by God. You know, Jesus selected and chose the original 12 apostles. Paul describes himself as an apostle born out of due season, and he was chosen by God and Christ. And Paul gives us considerable insight into his conversion. Uh, talks about it three different times in the book of Acts. And so I want to look at, uh, at some of those this morning. Because I think this gives us some insight into Paul's mission. Turn to Acts chapter 26. And uh, here Paul is before King Agrippa. Telling about how he got to this point. Because Paul certainly made a big change in his life. Uh, we'll pick up the reading with verse 13 of Acts chapter 26. Paul says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So Paul, on the road to Damascus, when Jesus appeared to him, Jesus had a talk with him and says, I've got this in mind for you. And Paul is generally known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And this is where that comes from. Because Christ said, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. He also, if we look in Acts chapter 22, uh, here Paul is kind of defending himself before the Jews 
in Jerusalem. And in verses 14 and 15, he uh, says, And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, and to see the righteous one, and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. So, God made it clear to Paul what mission he had in mind for him from the very beginning. But Paul, in in saying this uh, to the Colossians, he points out that he wasn't chosen by men but he was chosen by the will of God to be that eyewitness. Also in verse 1, he talks about Timothy. It says, Timothy, our brother. Certainly Paul had a special relationship with Timothy. Uh, they were both servants of Jesus Christ. You know, Philippians 1.1 tells us that. Uh, actually, you know, the term our brother uh, is translated that in the New American Standard. Uh, that is literally the brother, uh, which gives us a little different view. But I think both are appropriate. He was a brother to the Colossians, but to Paul, he was like the brother, someone that he felt very close to. Uh, Paul several times talks about his close relationship with Timothy, calls him his son Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18. His own son in the flesh, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 2. His beloved son, 1 Corinthians 4.17. And his dearly beloved son, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 2. Most likely Paul was instrumental in converting Timothy uh, to his becoming a Christian. And... uh, Paul gives one of his highest commendations uh, of him in Philippians chapter 2, in verses 19 through 24. So uh, let's turn there and read that. It says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also shall be coming shortly. So, he talks about their close relationship, you know, like a, you know, son-father relationship. Uh, 
So, it's quite possible that some in Colossae were acquainted with Timothy as well uh, because of his association with Paul. Uh, And now Timothy is with Paul in in Rome when he's in this uh, house arrest or imprisonment. Uh, And so it's natural that Timothy would want to send his greetings as well. So any questions, thoughts, comments on verse 1? Okay. Uh, Then he goes on to, after identifying himself, his greetings uh, along with Timothy, in verse 2 says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you, and peace from God our Father. Saints is a term that is often used to describe Christians. It's not a special term uh, like some in the denominational world use for a special class of Christians. All Christians are saints as well as Brothers, There's no special privilege with saints as opposed to any other Christians. And he says to the saints and faithful brethren. So this tells us something about those who were there in Colossae. That they were faithful Uh, and that they were brethren. So they shared this relationship as being part of the same spiritual family. They, They were together in this. And they were faithful. And probably Paul has in mind some of the errors that they were combating. And we'll see some of those errors as we go through the book. One of the ones that was fairly prevalent at that time was a doctrine known as Gnosticism. And what that means, uh, there was a group that believed that all flesh was evil. And... Yeah, just very wicked. And because of that thinking, they denied that Jesus actually came in the flesh. It's like he couldn't have possibly been a man. Because to be a man means you're evil. And so Paul combats that uh, in the book of Colossians. Uh, Now that false doctrine grew even more prevalent uh, in the second century after all those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus when he was here on earth, after they'd all died. It was hard for them to, to really gain a lot of traction when there were people that could say, hey, wait a minute. 
it can't possibly be true that Jesus didn't come in the flesh because I saw him. I touched him. But by the time all of those were gone, then that doctrine became even more prevalent for a while. So, there were certainly some false doctrines that uh, Paul addresses and combats and that the Colossians themselves were standing firm against. And so they were being faithful. And then he, in the latter part of verse 2, says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Uh, this is a greeting that was typically used at the time uh, in letters like this. Uh, one interesting thing that I found, the word grace here is a shortened form of the word used by the Greeks in their salutations to one another. And we find an example of that actually in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 23, this is the beginning of the letter that, you know, the apostles and elders at Jerusalem were sending to the brethren in Antioch and that region when there was question about whether uh, Gentiles needed to be circumcised. Uh, but the beginning of that says the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles greetings that word greetings is the common salutation or greeting that was used in letters and the word grace is just a shortened form of that word so I found that rather interesting and then also the word peace is used. This is the Greek word that is the translation of the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, that most of us have probably heard. Uh, and so the first word grace carries the idea of free and unmerited favor. The second word, peace, would mean tranquility, well-being. And in the life of a Christian, this peace comes from grace. Because of grace, and we, we talked about grace extensively in the book of Galatians, and, and rightfully so. Because without that grace... We don't have any peace. We don't have any hope. So, this peace comes naturally from the grace. And both are based upon our reconciliation to God. The relationship that we're allowed to have with God because of what Christ did. In coming and shedding his blood. Without that, God can't be described as our Father. 
because we don't have that relationship. So that's something that's really important. And Paul gets into that right in his greeting, which is really wonderful. Any thoughts, comments on that? Alan? It's uh, the way he presents himself to them as brothers. It, you know, I was growing up, that was something that was quite often done, mm-hmm. especially towards older people. You call them brothers, so mm-hmm. and so and so. And I'm sad the way that that's kind of gone by the way, because it, it taught um, a deep respect that they had for one another, especially those who are older. And we refer to one another as faithful brothers and sisters. Right. Thank you, Brother Piner. That, uh, yeah, excellent point. Uh, I, I totally agree. And I, I do remember that as well. Anything else? Okay. Verse 3, we begin uh, what can be termed as Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for them. And that actually continues through verse 8. But he says here in verse 3, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Again, it was customary in letters at that time that following the greeting, the salutation that we found in the first two verses, to then have an expression of thanks. Uh, and Paul followed that in most of his epistles. We find the pattern of that. Uh, he does say, we give thanks, probably referring to him and Timothy. Uh, But then he says, we always give thanks or always pray. And there's some question and debate as to which term always fits with, whether it's the giving of thanks or the praying. Now, he goes on in the next few verses giving reasons for his thankfulness, which would make you think that maybe the always goes with the giving of thanks. But I don't know that it has to be exclusively one or the other. I think it makes sense that he would always give thanks for them as he was always praying for them. So, to me, that that certainly makes a lot of sense. So, in other words, whenever they prayed to God, they gave thanks for the Colossians. But he also says who he was giving thanks to. God the Father, 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and certainly, without Christ, there's no connection to the Father, as we have already talked about. But then in verse 4, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. This is one of the statements that makes us think that Paul had not physically been to Colossae because he had heard about them, not that he had personally been there to see them. But he'd certainly heard reports from them. And because of their faith in Christ, and their love which they have for the saints, this is certainly one of the basis for his giving of thanks. Because of that. Yeah, Mike. It's interesting that when you think about what was said, and we talked about this in the Galatians study as well, that the law we are under is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's exactly what Paul was giving thanks to God for, for their love of Christ, the love of God, and their love of each other, love of their mm -hmm. so. Yeah. And we really find uh, in this verse and the next verse three really important concepts. Faith, love, and hope. And those three are tied together. And, uh, and rightfully so. So, I want to talk about that uh, for a little bit. Faith seems to be rather foundational. Everything, all these other things are really built upon the foundation of faith. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 talks considerably about faith. But it starts off with a definition of faith. So I want to turn and look at that. Hebrews 11.1 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So we have assurance and conviction. So Faith includes believing that certain things are true, they're, they're real, that would be conviction. Having that belief that certain things are real. But also in verse 6 of Hebrews 11, it says... And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those that believe him. So, we've got to believe that God is. So, we've got both of them. 
So when we trust God, we end up taking him at his word. We not only believe that he exists, but we believe in what he says. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and follow after him. And this trust in God gives us an assurance as far as what he's promised. You know, God can be trusted. Men, not so much. But we can trust in the promises of God. And that's really important. Nina. The, the faith, hope, and love is for the, the ones who truly believe. But what we have to remember is Paul is battling. What he's actually confronting here and trying to establish is the preeminence of Christ. Mm-hmm. Because Colossae has become a melting pot, kind of like America has become a melting pot. And they, he was battling pluralism, which is many religions, and animism, which is many uh, patterns. And they were worshiping uh, nature and spirits and astrology, Gnostic religions, mystery religions, Judaism, Roman and Greek, mm-hmm. and Christianity. Right. So he's trying to pull true Christianity out and say, you don't have hope. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have faith and love in these other beings or powers, you don't have the hope that comes from the preeminence of Christ. Yeah, very true. Uh, and Nina's right. That area was somewhat of a melting pot. Uh, there was back, uh, I think, in maybe the second century BC. Uh, there were a bunch of Jews that were deported to that region. A couple thousand, I believe, uh, is what I read. And so there was definitely a Jewish population there. But there were also a lot of Gentiles. And Gentiles of various beliefs. Uh, The Gentiles had a lot of pagan religions and gods that they worshipped. Uh, and so you had all of that kind of coming together. Uh, so yeah, there were, there were a lot of things going on in that region uh, that made standing for the true God not that easy a thing. And then as Persecution arose from the Roman Empire itself. Paul was imprisoned in Rome. That just added to the pressures that the Christians there had. So, uh, yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. Anything else? Yeah, John. Uh, and then he talks about 
but you don't have luck and you have absolutely nothing, and that all these three things work together. So he's right. going to say, this is a more excellent way. This is higher on that on that objective scale than all these other, other things that I can pray you for. Yeah. Now, certainly, I think the three stand or fall together. You can't have, you know, one without the other. And, and really have true faith, true hope, and true love. Boy. They're, they're tied together. Uh, so yes, you've got to have, without that hope of heaven, there's no reason to have faith. Uh, so yes, I think, uh, I think that's true. Uh, but you also got to have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So that's kind of what I... What I was trying to say maybe did not put it terribly well, but you've got to have all three. And they do support one another well. Any other thoughts on that? Brother Piner. that encouragement to those who are laboring in the gospel. Considering, yeah. Phil. Well, in verse 5, in verse 5, it's the truth. 
truth of the gospel that Christ overcame the world that gives us hope as Christians, which allows us to live by faith that that is true and to show that love to others. Right. Yeah. Now that, that's a good point as well. And I believe there where it says the word of truth, the gospel, uh, at least that's the New American Standard rendering, there's the definite article in the Greek in front of truth. So a better rendering we've heard in the word of the truth, the gospel. So it just makes it a little more powerful, I think. I, know. I think he ends with the, the hope, the, the confident assurance of heaven to build a bridge into the next section because he's going to expand on where that hope comes from and what exactly it is. So he ends there sort of bridge over into the hope of heaven, and this is what that looks like. Okay. Yep. Good point. Anything else? Okay. Okay. So, uh, if if our conviction of Christ is not grounded upon the truth of the gospel, that God revealed to us then we don't have any real grounds for the confidence assurance that we need to have we have to be grounded in the truth of the gospel and that's where many religions in the world have gone astray Instead of sticking to the gospel, sticking to the book, they've added their own ideas. Well, this makes sense to me, and I think this thing's good. No, we need to let God define what's good. Because when man defines good, we mess it up. And we see that today. There's all sorts of things that are called good that are not good at all. And man has been redefining terms. A recent example that really irks me, abortion is called health care. That can't possibly be health care because a person dies. That gets me. But when we call it health care, that raises all these emotional feelings. So you're denying a woman health care. Nothing could be further from the truth. But that's what happens when we stray from the truth. And so, we need to make sure we're grounded in the truth. And everything that we 
do and say comes from the gospel of Christ. And when that happens, then we know that we'll have that confident assurance. And it's not because we feel good, but because we're following the standard. Thank you for your attention and comments.